working for Crusoe. Economics and foreign affairs. Sam Park, John Ramey with you. It is Friday. It is March 31st. We are going to talk about Vice President Kamala Harris in Africa. We're going to talk about what is nearly a month, nearly a month of protest in France. Uh, 10,000 tons of garbage piling up in Paris. And then also what I have come to understand are kind of three related crises um, or near crises in Israel. So let's start with Vice President Harris in Africa. And Sam, your theme on this has been generally, this is not getting any attention. And I know you have backtracked on that recently. You uh, said that it's gotten some coverage, but I've got to plead ignorance. I have no idea what Vice President Harris is doing in Africa. Okay, well, I mean. And I don't think I'm alone. Well, I don't think you are either. And my fear was that it would just get no coverage whatsoever, just because both Kamala Harris and the continent of Africa just don't generally get a lot of media coverage in the United States, coincidentally or not. Uh, but I was happy to see that there actually was some coverage about this. And that's a good thing for both of them. Uh, but she it's a week-long trip, and that's a long time. And... From what I gather, uh, people, sort of decision makers and, and politicians and media people in Africa and others outside of Africa who, who follow events on the continent generally agree that world powers, that is, in this case, United States, China and Russia, are essentially competing for geopolitical influence in Africa. And those people seem to think that the third time is the charm because the previous historical episodes of great powers competing for influence in Africa haven't gone especially well for Africans. Uh, and, but this time they To think put it mildly. Yeah, to put it mildly. This time they think it's better because it's generally about development, uh, infrastructure, things of, you know, uh, foreign aid in general, and things like this. So it's generally viewed positively. From the African perspective... It's essentially taking bids. Who wants to help us the most and how? That's right. And by the way, they're not exclusive, right? No. I mean, you know, you, you can help and you can help and you can help. And that's generally good. And as we discussed in our previous episode about Nigeria, Africa is a continent of rising geopolitical importance and will continue to be so for the foreseeable future. So this is something that, just should be done by the United States just in general terms. And of course, Vice President Harris, as the highest ranking member of the executive branch of African-American descent in history, uh, is a good person to be doing this. Uh, Did you say second highest ranking in history? I thought she's the highest ranking in history. That That is to have to have visited the African continent. Oh, to have visited the African continent. Yes, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and uh, wait, Obama actually, no, never. I Obama. No, I, I, no, I should take that back. Uh, uh, he went to Egypt. Yes, that's right. Uh, but this is a longer trip. Sure. Uh, and by the way, uh, she's not the first cabinet member to visit Africa. Both Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, have been there previously. Uh, and in fact, 
Joe Biden himself hosted a summit of African leaders in Washington last year. So this is not a one-off. This is something that they're in clearly investing in. And again, I think that's something that really should be done because Africa is a place that is going to be more important as time goes on. Is there anything wrong with being cynical about this and saying the only reason the United States is doing this is so there's a check on the development of the Chinese relationship? I mean, that's certainly a factor, right? Uh, but but it's not the only one. It's not just that cynical, not just no, zero-sum games. I think it has much more to do with, first of all, it's not a zero-sum game, as we've already mentioned, right? You can help and you can help and you can help. Uh, but on top of that, as I was saying, Africa is just going to be more important as time goes on. And I think that anybody can see that, if only because of their demographic profile. It's an incredibly young population across the continent and growing all the time. And and so the future will be African more and more as the 21st century progresses. And that's just going to happen. Because all the existing kind of powers are old. That's right. Uh, you know, China has a, a China, Japan, population. yeah, Europe, right? Asia. You know, I guess India is still very young, but uh, but Africa on the whole is a young and growing population. One thing I forgot to mention when we were talking about Nigeria is that Nigeria, in particular, is the cultural capital of the continent, mainly by virtue of the strength of its film industry which not not every year, but in many given years of recently, uh, tops the world in the number of theatrical releases. Uh, that doesn't get a lot of attention, but you'll see a lot more African actors, even in Western cinema today, than you ever have before, because there's this enormous industry in Nigeria and in other parts of uh, Africa, but because Nigeria has the largest population, has the largest economy, their film industry is far more advanced than in other places, to the point where filmmakers outside of Nigeria are envious that people in Nigeria get all the attention, and, and even filmmakers outside of Lagos in Nigeria are envious that Lagos gets all the attention. So Nigeria is the California of Africa. Well, I think that's that would be oversimplified. But in terms of film, sure. And just right. cultural, maybe cultural. I didn't know that about Nigeria, that it's if you're going to see something kind of in media or in culture that is African, which is a term that's so silly because it's such a big place with such diverse people, it's going to be Nigerian. Most it's likely, going, yeah. It's going to have been somehow produced through Nigeria, most yes, likely. I, I think a, in a plurality of cases, yeah. at least. Right. So and at any rate, uh, Vice President Harris uh, started in Ghana, which, of course, is very symbolic. There's a, a, a museum of a historical slave port uh, at which, of course, she visited and every foreign dignitary always visits the museum there. Uh, and then she moved on to Zambia and Tanzania, which is a very different sort of uh, experience because those are East African countries, which, as we know, didn't play any real part in the transatlantic slave trade, if only for geographical purposes. Ghana also merits special attention because it is one of the most 
stable and successful democracies on the entire continent. So that's a, a place that people like to visit, especially uh, you can imagine U.S. officials really wanting to go there because of the importance of democracy in this sort of international geopolitical conversation right now. So I don't want to, you know, go into too much detail about this. You know, we have other things to talk about today, but I, I think this is just in general a positive development. Let's go to France. Okay. The sanitation workers with their union uh, CTG have been on strike since March 6th, ending on March 29th with mountains of garbage piled up in Paris. Uh, That union, uh, which is from what I've read pretty far left, uh, um, is it CGT or CTG? Now I got to check that. It's CGT. They just elected a new uh, leader, their first uh, woman leader they've had since 1895. And she has basically said, no surrender. We're not giving up. So there are more and there are more strikes planned. All of this comes from uh, President Macron's push, which I believe has circumvented the legislative branch. He's kind of done this with an executive order, more or less, to push the retirement age up from 62 to 64. Now, there are a lot of people in the conversation in media in in the French uh, world that say, look, that's an oversimplification. But the fact of the matter is French workers are mad because the government is telling them to work longer. That's right. That's the the the, the basics of it. Sir. They're big mad. Yes. I, I mean, first of all, uh, an overwhelming majority of the population of France is opposed to this measure. Uh, and I should say, though, that from what I gather, and mind you, I, I know le- much less about the French political system and constitution than I know about our own. Well, they but, keep changing it there. Well, I mean, they have uh, over the years, in quite yeah. some time. Uh, but this is an eminently constitutional procedure. Uh, it's been invoked that the measure is called forty nine point three. Is this uh, the he? Uh, is this Macron deciding to deciding to ignore the legislature and make this policy implement this policy? Okay. Yes, I mean, it, the forty nine point three has been implemented something like a hundred times. So Macron is not doing anything illegal, just unpopular. no, not not remotely. Uh, uh, I think a hundred times throughout the history of the Fifth Republic, this has been done for some reason or another. Fifth uh, Republic dating to what, 1958? Something like yeah. that, yeah, about yeah. somewhere yeah. around there. Uh, and a lot of it also has to do with what is perceived to be Macron's arrogant and imperious governing style, which is certainly true. I mean, he has that reputation. Uh is also kind of part of being president of France, just as but, an aside. I think that's what Macron himself would say, right? Yeah. I mean, he he's, he has mentioned that he views the presidency that way as it, an institution. It's semi-monarchical, but, historically. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there's good reason for that. I kind of feel like if you're the president, you probably shouldn't say that. Right. Uh, you know, that actually seems to undercut your own case, right? Uh, but... <laughs> To sum up, there's nothing, for, for instance, this measure still has to pass the Constitutional Council. Now, I don't know, but I can't see why they would object, right? It seems like he's followed all the, I mean, one of the things about 49.3 is that you can push this through without the parliament 
as long as you survive a no a subsequent no confidence vote, which he has done. In fact, there were two such votes, and he survived both of them. That's so, remarkable. Yeah, so I don't know what the Constitutional Council could possibly object to in this. So I have a feeling that this is probably a done deal, but that is in terms of whether the measure will go through. But I can... I'm pretty confident that there will be continuing civil unrest about this uh, because people are very angry. And of course, civil unrest, street demonstrations, things of this nature are just a more accepted part of French political culture than they are in other parts of the world. Uh, That's just something that's part, you know, that's how the post-monarchy French nation was founded, right? It was because of street demonstrations and said they consider it uh, one of their great institutions of political life. And so I can I imagine that this is going to go on uh, for some time. But I do believe that the measures will survive. Uh, and to be fair, Macron campaigned on this. He didn't spring this on anybody, right? It wasn't a surprise. He said he was going to do it. And then he did. Uh, but I think it has special relevance today that it might not have had in previous years just because of what is broadly perceived to be the reevaluation and redefinition of the idea of work, not just in France, but all over the developed world uh, in the light of the pandemic, where people started to look at their lives and say, okay, what a, what's this for? Uh, and I think it also has a lot to do with the record level of uh, economic inequality. right? And Where, inflation. Sure. Uh, but especially in the case of inequality, where people are thinking, why am I working all these years just so the people above me can take a record amount of the gains from the work that we're all doing. And I think it also touches on things like uh, artificial intelligence, where work might not be needed to be done in the future. Right uh, now, I think that a lot, be- a lot of human labor will not need to be performed by humans. Yeah, and now I think that might be overblown, but it might not be. We've never actually seen anything like artificial intelligence before at scale, right? It's not a question of whether jobs will be replaced because that uh, that happens all the time, right? Economists generally believe that uh, technology on a net basis creates more jobs than it destroys. And I think... That, I mean, that's obviously true. If if it weren't true, then we'd all have starved to death a long time ago. Listen, there are more auto mechanics than there were saddle makers. I guess, right? Uh, But the the point, for instance, we've talked about how, you you know, you couldn't even do the job you have if it wasn't for technological advancements. There would be fewer opportunities for that uh, in your, you know, think of people who are software engineers, Right. right? When I was born... Nobody was a software engineer. There was a job that didn't exist. And now there are certainly millions of people who do that job, right? So we know that technology does create jobs, uh, or at least it always has. At the same time, 
And I know I talked to you about this a number of years ago, where the Industrial Revolution writ large, uh, when it occurred, again, created many, many jobs that didn't exist before. You, you couldn't be a factory worker prior to the Industrial Revolution. However, there were jobs that were eliminated in that process that were not performed by people. They were performed by horses, horses or oxen, <laughs> oxen. but mainly right. horses. Yeah. Right. And economists don't don't generally factor those in, right? And there's no we're... beast of burden GDP from the yeah, uh, the, 18th, know, I mean, 19th people century. People weren't keeping track of these things. But we know in general terms that a couple of things happened. One, people stopped breeding as many horses as they did before because they didn't need them. And in fact, that's kind of what happens with people also. As prosperity rises, right. you don't gen generally don't have as many kids. Right? You don't need 10 kids to work the field if you're living in a city. That's right. However, a certain number of horses, and I don't think anyone has any real idea of what that number is, but a certain number of horses were put down. Uh, and we need to make sure we're getting as we do this sort of analysis we need to make sure we're factoring things like this in but we can't right we don't have enough data to be able to say uh and we just want to make sure that we're not the horses in this scenario right well journalists have long been the horses in the digital uh revolution so well, but, no... but we don't know who the horses are going to end right. up being well it'll right? certainly continue to be journalists and other people well i mean yeah it could be any number of people and i think that's the fear right uh but back so... to france in particular some people might go oh my goodness their retirement age was 60 and then it was 62 and now it's 62 to 64 that's lower than the united states great britain other places yeah. Why are these French so lazy? And of course, it's not that simple. And of course, it's also organized labor has traditionally been strong in France. So they've earned these concessions over the years. That's right. And and they, they you know, you don't want things to be taken away from you. But I, I prefer not to work till 64. I, I, I'm right there with you. And I think that uh, uh, this is more to do with what I was saying before about the, the reevaluation of the idea of work. Right. Uh, for instance, people, Joe Biden, for instance, and people like uh, Sherrod Brown, uh, the Democrats, mind you. Right. They always talk about the dignity of work. Right. And I think that this is an idea that might be becoming outdated. Right. Where nobody, think, you know, I mean, the, the dignity of work. Give me a break. I mean, it, the, people don't care about this. And I think the French are sort of ahead of this, uh, ahead of us on this. Right. There's like dignity of work. What I want to work longer. Who's going to hire me? Right. Who's going to, you know, uh, if I if I lose my job, who's going to hire me for my next job if I'm 62? Seriously, you really think that's going to happen? And because I think that's uh, something that is sort of unexamined in this entire scenario. And there's people evaluating things like the four day work week, uh, you know, studies being done. And by the way, generally positive reaction. If you're not working as many days, you're under less stress. This has good health outcomes for you, right? This has good productivity outcomes for companies, by the way, right? Uh, and so this is an idea that's in flux, I think, in a way that it hasn't been 
uh, up until now in our lives. And so that's something that we're going to want to keep an eye on in the future. But as far as France itself is concerned, I think this is probably over. There will be continual continuing uh, civil unrest over it, but I don't see the law being revoked. I could be wrong. Again, I don't know as much about France as I know about the United States, but that's how I think this will shake out. With regard to continuing unrest and kind of that tradition in French politics and and, and societal conversation, uh, I think I told you once I met a, a, a Parisian when I was in Barcelona and somehow we were talking about politics or the French people rejecting some, I forget what the particular issue or policy was. And he said, man, we cut off the heads of our kings. This is nothing. And, you know, there, there's no guillotine. There are no guillotines now, but it, it is part of the tradition. There were when I was a kid. There you go. I guess no guillotines in the streets. Right. Okay, fine. Yeah, I'm sure it's still, I'm sure there's still some, something on the books that says uh, if you do something wrong in France, there might be a guillotine in play. No, I think they, they, did they, they get had, rid of it? They had to get rid of it to, because of uh, European integration. Mm. Right? I, I, I think that's the reason. But the, the last person to be put to death by guillotine was in the 70s, right? The they 20th, were still, that's amazing. They were still cutting <laughs> people's heads off. Sorry, it's, shouldn't it's, laugh, should not laugh at no. that. Uh, by the way, he was a poor Tunisian immigrant. Uh, and there by you go. the way, did totally brutally murder somebody, right? Okay. So, I mean, well. uh, uh, but, but yeah, yeah, there's the tradition is there. I also noticed, like, in the coverage of the uh, in the coverage of the protests, it, they're not lethal, there's arrests and injuries. There has been some violence. I think the city hall of Bordeaux was, was set on fire, right? But not uh, lethal violence, to the best of my knowledge, no, uh, and. There's been some great news clips that I've seen of, you know, people having dinner at an outdoor restaurant while across the street, there's this enormous flaming pile of burning garbage, right? And, and you know, they're just sitting there having their dinner, la, 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 just like, never mind. Uh, yeah, like like proper French people. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, it's just it's just civil unrest. We do it all the time. Speaking of civil unrest, although not in Europe, Israel. And there is an article today in the New York Times about one cabinet member, the finance minister in the Netanyahu government. His name is Bezalil Smotrich. And it's an article written by Patrick Kingsley. And this guy, Smotrich, is a right wing zealot, but apparently is not like um, an ideologue. So he'll he'll try to understand why other people think differently. But, you know, he wants to make the settlements permanent and he is wants the um, reforms uh, within government influence over uh, the Supreme Court in Israel. He wants to judicial, excuse me. Yeah, he wants to press those forward. And uh, it's it's a fascinating article. We're not going to talk about this finance minister, but in the article, uh, Kingsley very succinctly points out. There are three current crises in Israel, political turmoil over the judicial overhaul domestically there, rising violence in the occupied West Bank, and then the growing rift with foreign governments um, because of these things. I thought that was pretty, uh, that was a nice, succinct way to look at the current situation because there are a lot of moving parts in Israel right now. Yes, that's right. It's it's very, very serious. And uh, unlike in France, where 
I thought that this will pretty much be over, right? This will not be over soon. Uh, and it's difficult to see how it's going to be resolved. Uh, because as we know, uh, Netanyahu has pulled back from pushing this through right now. So we should, I just want to restate this. Netanyahu wanted to implement or to restructure the amount of influence the government has on the, or the elected government, his government has on the judicial branch in Israel, which had this pesky for Netanyahu habit of declaring various settlement activities as unconstitutional. Well, for, and, and or illegal. Know, that's right. And, uh, and, He's doing this partly at the behest of the far right members of his coalition, like Smotrich, the finance minister. Yes, and especially uh, the national security minister Itamar Ben Gavir, uh, who belongs to a, a far right party. I can't remember what they're called. I mean, Sam, uh, just these people are so far right they don't shake hands with women on religious grounds. I mean, it's it's pretty them, yes, it's pretty right. like this Smotrich. I mean, that's you know that's ultra orthodox. Yes, and uh, that is, in fact, the fastest rising demographic in Israel. As right? luck it's, would have it. Yeah, right. Is there, just because they have the most children. Uh, they also are exempt from military service. Uh, and so you might recall that last week when uh, some you know, about 100 reservists or so said, no, we're not showing up, right, uh, because... We're not going to, you know, go and fight uh, on behalf of a government uh, run by people who refuse to fight, right? Uh, was this specifically in the West Bank, or was it just generally just, not they, reporting they, they, to duty? They, they, uh, they're just not reporting for duty. I that. mean, fair point. Yes, and because national service is compulsory in Israel. Yes, and the the well, unless you're ultra, ultra orthodox, right? Uh, and what ended up forcing Netanyahu's hand was the statement by about a week ago by the defense minister whose name is Yaev Gilan. And he also supports the judicial reform, right? He's on board with it, but he urged Netanyahu to pull back from it because of national security concerns. Uh, he said, we can't continue to have these guys not showing up in case something happens. Uh, and Which is a much more urgent and kind of kitchen table issue in Israel. Yes, it's a very small country geographically and in terms of population. And that's partly why these protests have been able to just paralyze the entire country. When you've got when you're dealing with that small an area of land and that small a number of people, if you've got 100,000 people out on the street, that you, you're not getting anything done. Uh, to and, say nothing of the fact that they're surrounded by more or less enemies. Well, yeah, not so much as they used to be, but uh, but and that's the sort of unspoken or almost unspoken element of this is that so far the anti-Netanyahu protesters have basically not mentioned the Palestinian issue at all. But it is relevant, as you mentioned, right, some of Netanyahu's coalition partners are all about expanding the settlements in the West Bank. And there was an enormous eruption of violence there a few weeks ago uh, in which a settler was killed. And in response, a mob of settlers just terrorized the Palestinian community nearby. 
Uh, and by the way, a couple of them were charged with with uh, very serious crimes just the other day. So it's not like they're getting off scot-free. But uh, the Palestinian issue has, has been left separate from the judicial overhaul issue, even though it's integrally related. And again, just to, to just to spell this out explicitly, Netanyahu wants more control over the judicial branch so that the judicial branch will stop declaring illegal what he and his government want to do in the West Bank. Among other things, yes. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, the ultra-Orthodox parties have, you know, they're very socially conservative, right? Uh, the judicial overhaul would do at least two things, one of which is that it would uh, mean that uh, judges of the Supreme Court could be, you know, would be under, their selection would be more under the control of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. Also, their decisions could be overridden by a simple majority of the Knesset. Could you imagine such a thing in the United States? I mean, that would be chaos. At that point, why bother having a Supreme Court? Just have another parliament. There would be an additional procedural step needed for the override, but it would basically just, you know, obviate having a Supreme Court. One thing I should say also is that uh, the Knesset is a single chamber parliament. And Israel has no written constitution. They wanted to have one at the founding, but they couldn't agree. Uh, And so the idea of having one was basically shelved in 1949. uh, after A year after its founding. That's right. And so they've gone this far without a written constitution. As a result of both of those phenomena, the Israeli Supreme Court functions sort of like an upper house. For example, our Supreme Court takes up maybe 100 cases a year. It's not at all unusual for the Israeli Supreme Court to take up 1,000 cases in a year. Uh, And conservatives in Israel feel like that this always goes against them, right, where they want to do something, but the Supreme Court overrides them. And and it could be any number of things. It could do with... uh, the religious exemption from national service, for, for for instance, it could be about settlements, right? Uh, and but it could be anything. That's the point, right? Is that the Knesset could override any decision of the Supreme Court, uh, no matter what the issue might happen to be, and people just uh, are not uh, happy about that. Do conservatives in Israel think they're always going to have? control of the Knesset like that. If you push that reform through, because in the short term, you think you can advance your policy goals. What if you're not, what if you don't have a plurality? What if you don't have the juice in the Knesset someday? And then everything you stand against can just get rubber stamped by the majority. I mean, that seems a bit short-sighted. Well, I guess it might be. I don't just as, you know what I'm France. saying? I mean, I know, it's simil- I, know I understand exactly yeah. what you're saying, but I don't have as firm a grasp sure. of Israeli politics to be able to say how the how I think those incentives right. might or might not stack up. Right. And I would be hesitant to to speculate speak sure. as if I did have that level of knowledge because I really don't. 
Because it's it's similar to me about the argument in the United States about getting rid of the um, the filibuster. In, 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 it's smaller stakes, smaller scale, um, but it's the same notion, right? Like you want to be able to check the majority and especially if you're not in the majority, that's going to be helpful someday. Well, at least in, at least here, we would still have a Supreme Court that that could, exactly. You know, yeah, uh, no, it'd be it's a much smaller change, but it's the I was just had the same kind of curiosity about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Netanyahu is is the the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history. And so I, you know, conservatives would, I think, be sort of justified in thinking that, yeah, we can control the Knesset because we've done it very consistently, especially in recent years. And as the uh, uh, demographics inside of Israel tend to favor the rising population of ultra-Orthodox citizenry, then, you know, uh, why should they not feel like they they can control the Knesset? Again, that's just a guess. That may or may not be the reason. Netanyahu has been in office on and off since 1996. That's right. I mean, that's the better part of 25 years. Yes, he is the major player in Israeli politics and has been for a very, very long time. And Uh, since uh, the death of Rabin, really? Well, yeah. I mean, there's been other people, obviously. Wow. uh, But. and in that time, the the traditional center left party of Israel, the Labor Party, has gone down to you know to ignominious defeat. They almost don't exist anymore. And uh, this has been uh, an ongoing sort of process for a very long time that finally seems to be reaching uh, a, a crisis state. And it'll be interesting. For instance, there's been uh, some back and forth between Netanyahu and Joe Biden this week, where, you know, Biden hopes that they come up with, a you know, a good compromise. And uh, Netanyahu tells him, you know, this is none of your business. Right. Uh, but one of the linchpins of the United States relationship with Israel is because Israel is a democracy. And as the United States moves away from fossil fuels, the sort of geostrategic imperative of backing Israel diminishes over time. We don't know exactly how fast, but if we don't need to worry about Middle East oil and Israel's going to become a less democratic society, then the the sort of relationship begins to erode, let's say. I don't think it's anywhere near rupturing or anything like that. But the the rationale behind it becomes less strong, uh, or at least it could. And that's something to keep in mind. Uh, for that matter, uh, Israel has for a number of decades now had very good relations with Russia, especially with the advent of many uh, former Soviet Jews uh who became a larger and uh, and more important part of the population in Israel since the fall of the Soviet Union. And so we're going to have to keep an eye on this just from a geopolitical standpoint. One more thing. Uh, we would, I feel, be remiss if we did not at all mention the pending indictment of Donald Trump here in this country. <laughs> By itself, 
it doesn't have any implications thus far on economics or foreign policy, which are the purview of this podcast. However, as we know, Donald Trump is the first former president to be indicted in American history. Or indicated, as he uh, indicated, yes, correct. However, I think he is also the first presidential candidate to be under indictment in our history. I could be wrong about that, but I believe that to be the case. And that's what we might need to keep an eye on, because I, I, up until today, I would have said he stands a good chance of being the Republican nominee. That might change if he's under enough indictments. But right now, that seems to be the way it looks. If he's the nominee, then many of his blithering utterances will have implications for economic policy and foreign policy. So we will need to talk about these things in the future. For instance, just this week, I can't remember if it was an interview or a video statement he was making, but he said that he believed the war in Ukraine would end with Russia taking over all of Ukraine. Uh, And so... We will need to talk about this in the future. Probably not very soon, but it could be sooner than we think.